Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Watching Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill left quite an impression on a teenage Lauren Hathaway, so much so that after graduating summa cum laude from Southern Methodist University in Texas with a degree in business and film, Lauren packed her bags and headed to L.A. to pursue a career in sound editing and mixing. The move paid off. Lauren worked as a dialogue assistant director on a roster of films, including Justice League, Operation Finale, The Hateful Eight, and Whiplash. By the way, she is a 2018 Outfest Screenwriting Lab Fellow. Lauren set her sights higher, quickly establishing a name for herself as a bold new voice in queer storytelling. Her debut feature, The Novice, premiered at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival, winning Best U.S. Narrative, Best Actress, and Best Cinematography. It tells the story of Alex Dahl, a queer college freshman who joins the school's rowing team embarking on an obsessive physical and psychological journey to make it to the top varsity boat no matter the cost or consequences. The film was inspired by Lauren's own experience in competitive rowing at Southern Methodist. Needless to say, there's a lot of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know Lauren Hathaway. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Paris. I'm actually in L.A. briefly for this, but yes, I do live in Paris. I was going to begin by saying I'm assuming that Possum Trot, Texas is a complete 180 from living in Paris. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I was in that, that small town. Like, I never thought that I would leave the country even for vacation, quite honestly. So the fact that I'm living in another country is beyond. And uh, to also have made a film and it, it have gotten any kind of success and even two people having seen it was is a dream come true so I have to remind <laughs> myself you know like even even when things feel like they're going wrong sometimes like I am living the life that my 15 year old self was think would think is so cool and it's kind of why it's, I try and judge everything by that people can have fantasies and dreams and want to do something and yours became reality yeah yeah it doesn't happen every day why Paris um Okay. Well, I, I give this, I have, I've had like 130, 150 general meetings. I don't know how many, and I give a certain answer because, uh, you know, that's not being recorded. <laughs> um, but with this, I, uh, I was in, I went and saw this film, the portrait of lady on fire. And it was around, it was in this period of, of not a good place, um, had gone through a breakup and, uh, was had just you know shot the film and we were um, I had just done the assembly edit and I knew I was going to crash and and I had set up all these things for myself knowing that I would crash I know myself because the adrenaline high of like shooting and then going straight into editing so it was like months and months and months of nonstop for me 15 16 18 20 hour days dancing then, as fast as you can you mean yeah and then and then to nothing and so I had started taking classes at, at a community college you know poetry Shakespeare I like I was doing an adult skate class every uh once a week and hanging out with friends I had developed this whole routine and then the pandemic hit um and everything was starting to shut down and things were starting to close and it was actually March 13th 2020 that I said I'm gonna learn French and spend the summer in Paris imagining that my film would be done and that I would finally get a chance to like live and, and, you know, be free and, you know, city of love. And then the next day LA completely shut down. Um, right. the cafe that I was at, that I wrote at, uh, closed forever. That was the last day I actually went and saw portrait of a lady on fire again that day. That was the last day I saw a movie in theaters. And then my obsession became four hours of French a day and finishing the novice and the th what I thought would be three months turned to four, turned to five, turned to six. The pandemic just kept on going. And at some point I was in Texas, hold up, uh, kind of fled the city, kind of like a lot of my friends did at that point. 
and um, small town Texas and decided one day, I remember exactly where I was standing. I was like, I'm going to move to Paris. And I couldn't even apply uh, for a visa at that time. But as soon as I could, December or January, I applied and I got all these letters written. And um, it was actually the artistic director for Tobacco was Parisian, had him write me a letter and then talk to him about it. And uh, I got in, they gave me a visa. So I lived there for no reason other than why not. And I figured, you know, all the, the meetings and things will be happening over Zoom for a while, which right. they have been can write from anywhere and figured if I end up getting lucky enough to shoot another movie, the chances of it happening in LA anyways are, are slim to none. So parenthetically, I was going to major in French in college and I love France. Moving to Paris could be like dying and going to heaven. That's at least how I felt back in the day. First of all, I love it. And the, the weird thing is I moved to at the height of the pandemic. So it was, I think, March 29th, 2021. There were eight people on my flight to Paris because no one was allowed in um, except for if you had certain requirements and, and my visa was allowed in. So I'd like poor man's first class. And then I get there though, this, the entire city is completely you know, shut down. There's a 7 p.m. curfew. Nothing, right, they took it the, on the chin too. Yeah. Yeah, none of the Parisian terraces and cafes, nothing's open. So it was interesting getting there at that time and, and kind of exploring the city. It felt like a city of bones, but it was beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. Again, I'm from Podunk, Texas. I lived in LA. <laughs> like I, It's a young city. And I also was tired and just needed some, you know, time, like recovery time and, and uh, all of that was happening. And, and then I got to see the city bloom and slowly kind of come alive. And, and I got to enjoy the city, you know, things starting to open and the curfew slowly being lifted along with all the other Parisians and the kind of excitement in the air of that. And for a long time, there were no tourists. I was the only people would hear my accent or, you know, they talked to me <laughs> in my French and I'm not fluent. I'm not like, uh, no one's going to, you know, people know. I mean, you say bonjour, y'all. Yeah. Bonjour, (laughs) y'all. Como ça va? Right. Uh, Yeah. And so I, um, yeah, there was no like tourists for the longest time. And uh, that was really nice. And then eventually the tourists came back and all that. But, and then when Tribeca happened too, like after that point, I, I got agents and kind of all the meetings started happening. And so my routine really became in the mornings I write every day, I go to a terrace, I write all day. Uh, you know, four hours till I burn out. And then I have an hour or two meander around the city. And then I have two or three hours of meetings with LA. Um, but it's nice because it's like, this is my block. You guys get 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. every night. It's mm-hmm, for LA. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. it can't fit in that that time, then it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that way I don't have a meeting at eight. And then it's like, oh, can you do 11? Can you do a lunch in WeHo at one? Can you do yeah. all of this? Which has been great. And so it's been really healing. And I'm eager to kind of get back and get back into my routine. But I'm very kind of a a recluse. And I mean that in the best way. I love it. So you were able to go to Paris and exhale. Yeah. And uh, then, then inhaled quite deeply. Um, And I feel like too, my creativity came back. I think when the terrace is open, I could leave, you know, the house. I hadn't written really in a year. Granted, I was finishing my film and also working a day job and there was a pandemic and I was learning French and doing all this, but I hadn't. (laughs) hadn't felt creative in a long time and and all that stuff started coming back and and obviously the city's very inspiring and to be able to just walk out my door and uh, mm-hmm. you know any direction I turn there's something to do and see um and eat yeah a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of bread a lot of baguettes and those kind of things so so let's go back in time when you were applying to college your goal was what when you got into southern methodist I knew from the time that I was 15 when I saw Kill Bill, which I think you mentioned in your intro or, or Tarantino specifically, that I wanted to be a director. But I was all, always very scholastically uh, driven and self-motivated and cared about school and obsessed over grades and all of that. 
And I was really embarrassed by telling people that I wanted to major in film because it seemed like a pipe dream. Uh So I decided I was going to double major in business because when people ask like, Lauren, you know, what are you going to major in? And even my guidance counselor, when I told him I wanted to major in film, because I did really well, you know, at our school, I was like the best test taker in our school. He's like, you sure you don't want to major in um, engineering? Because I got like a, a perfect score on my math SAT. The reading, ironically, did good, but not great. And I was like, no, no, I want to major in film, but I had all this like uh, insecurity about that. So I decided to double major in business so that I could tell people I'm majoring in film, but I'm also getting, you know, a business degree. Right. Right. Responsible. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I went there, I mean, I wanted to to be a director in the business. I did the business program. I even did an honors business program. I I thought anyone would care about that when I graduated. No one does. But those classes are really just kind of like chore. I have to do it homework. I have to just check those off and didn't care, didn't like, you know, connect with those classmates, didn't do anything, did well, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. wasn't my thing. But also when I got there too, I remember walking into the the student filmmakers club the first day or whenever first week that went and, you know, the room full of all these dudes and all the, a lot of kids from big cities were there and everyone seemed to have like fancy Mac laptops and fancy computers and fancy editing software and seemed so confident and suave and cool and mostly dudes. Not that I ever felt because I was a woman that I was being, you know, treated a certain way, but all of those things kind of get to you in a way. And I, and I very quickly realized I was like, well, I can't be a director. No way I can't like compete against these people. And um, to the point that we had our first uh, student film, like you had a, like a sort of uh, not audition for a part, but, you know, give a speech in front of the club and, you know, your, what's your vision? What role do you, you want to be the editor? You want to be the director? You want to be a producer? You want to be the AD, the grip? And I was so, you know, overcome with imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I remember researching all the um, positions of film because I, I still didn't even know at that point. Again, I just, just like didn't know anything. And I was like, well, I have the qualifications to be a PA, a production assistant, which I had no concept. Anyone who works in film knows like a PA is like just a grunt. Like they get the coffee, they do nothing. Sure, like, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, so I made this whole speech about, and I even had like, props about wanting to be a PA. And after I was done, everyone <laughs> was like, you like, should run for president for God's sake. Yeah. They're like PA of the century. And I didn't realize until, you know, later next year, the year after how stupid it was. Um, Cause usually what happened was you, you, you go out, I want to be the director or I want to be the grip or whatever. And you don't get in, you become a PA if you're a freshman, but I had gone, I was so, so overcome with like, I can't do this, that I I really gave my all, gave like a big speech and all this to be the like lowliest p- default position that anyone is allowed to get. So that was my goal. And uh, I kind of felt, and I loved editing too. Like I was editing I remember in uh, high school too. I saved up because I used to make little movies and you, re- you rewind and you, if the take went bad, you have to rewind the camera and do it again. And sometimes it's imperfect. So I saved up all my money to buy like some, some shitty editing software uh, and got kind of into post-production in college. And that's where I discovered sound, which led to, you know, my first career. I just want to go off to the side for a second, because I'm really struck by the fact that you are going to do what you're going to do. And whether there may have been some self-doubt internally, that's not necessarily anything that you might have shared. Where's that come from? That's a good question. And I haven't really analyze it enough to know. I mean, I think for me, I've always been very hard on myself and very kind of internally motivated. And I think that I'm relatively self-aware. Hopefully that doesn't sound unself-aware to say that, but um, I don't, I don't know what it is. And I, and I don't want to say that imposter syndrome is just a thing that is given to women, but it, it certainly tends to be more women in that regard. But um, 
I, I have no idea where it comes from. And I wish I did. And I always like when I talk to kind of classes or whoever or groups of people or new students, alumni, I always make sure to kind of say that story about how I felt that imposter syndrome. But the thing that really got me over it um, was working in the industry at a very high level for a long time, or well, relatively a long time, and, and kind of seeing like, you know, the sound, post sound is the ass in the post production. So you get to see kind of like all, all the problems that culminate over the course of the film. Uh, you know, you have bottom, bottom feeder, top feeder, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you, you can kind of see all that stuff. And, uh, I also saw how you see how the sausage is made and you see, you know, the director, producer, editor, all these people coming onto the mix stage to kind of talk. And they're not just talking about sound. They're talking about color. They're talking about, Oh, we got to reshoot this. And I worked on films that have had scenes reshot and this and that. And the thing that I've noticed, and also even working with some of my heroes is no one really has it all figured out. Uh, no one, no one is a, creative genius i mean there's i would say there's a couple creative geniuses sure but for the most part people working in the industry at a high level are just good decent people mm. there's also a lot of idiots and the thing i didn't get over my imposter syndrome about that um until i saw all that and kind of realized it and um i mean i've had it too i also was a closeted writer you could say i mean i've been writing my whole life and never intended i thought i would maybe be you know an author when people would ask me when i was seven what i wanted to be when i grew up i want to be an author um, but I, you know, have novels and drawers no one will ever read and, and didn't talk to people about it. And when I decided it was November, 2016, that I set a five-year goal to transition into writing and directing. And I kept that to myself for a long time and didn't, mm -hmm. like, you know, didn't come out as a writer. And even when I wrote the first draft of the novice, I had one friend who I talked to about my writing ambitions, but that was it. Um, I put the script on the blacklist just to see this, this site, you can put your screenplay, get ratings and get reviews to get kind of some unbiased feedback. And it was only through that, through getting this objective kind of view that um, I began to kind of step out of that. And I think a lot of it is maybe some of it's, I think there's this thing I've also talked about too in, in interviews with um, Isabel, the, the lead actress of the film, where I think a lot of, you know, you talk about a director and actor trusting each other. And for me, when I talk about what is trust, it's not being able to tell someone to do something. It's being able to tell someone no and not to do something. And I think maybe as a, a society we feel like we can't give constructive criticism to people or we were you know your friend asked you do you think i've gained a little and you're like no you're, yeah, you're right right, and, right. But we've learned to you know the voice gets high and like we've learned to read all these things and to question and you or know, deflect just, yeah and you you don't know how to take a compliment or you see people who are kind of two-faced or you, you start questioning all this stuff and you don't want to be a fool and I think like letting go of, of, you know, once you hit an age where you're like, well, I'm, if I do something stupid, humiliate myself, someone makes fun of me. Then, you know, just, you just shrug it off and then people yeah, chalk it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. When you were making your moves, was there a ubiquity of women or did you find yourself more anomalous? Uh, no, there's not a lot of women, I, even in my film school. I mean, there was a couple of women, but it was mostly uh, men in it. I, I think I had one female professor in the film program um and then when I moved to LA I mean the the woman who actually got me in the door I didn't know kind of where to start on sound and I set this career ambition which seemed ridiculous at the time which is to work on a Tarantino film because I just needed a direction to point you know mm -hmm. a north star and I had worked backwards and I was like okay who does his sound where do they work and I contact at this place and at sound Deluxe, which doesn't exist anymore but at the time there were two emails on the um the website and one of them was for this woman becky sullivan who's general manager or so i forget exactly her title and i emailed her just kind of saying i don't want any advice i 
or I don't want a job. I just want some advice. Duh, 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 duh. And I think that she was very aware of like trying to pull other women up kind of behind her. And it's just, she get, threw me a bone. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talked over the course of the next six months, emails here or there, calls here or there. I mean, I think she dodged me a little, but I was persistent. And uh, she, she got me in the door and there was maybe another woman, Karen Baker Landers, who worked there too. She's a, she's, you know, Oscar winning sound person extraordinaire. But aside from that, I mean, it's very male dominated and I've been in situations too, where on the mixed stage and, and, and there's no guy, I mean, I've had, I shouldn't say there's no experience. I've had some creepy experiences with men, but for the most part, I think most of the instances I've had with men that are slightly weird comes from the fact that, you know, I'm 20 something working with a bunch of 50, 60 year old dudes. Yeah. That had to be a factor for sure. Yeah. And they say, I mean, they, most of them mean well, I would say 95% of them mean well, but I do remember one instance of being on a mixed stage and um, this really respected mixer was talking about how basically saying that dialogue was women's work, which, you know, if you don't know anything about sound and, and how it is like, that might not mean anything to you, but effects are kind of like the cool you cut like explosions and like the cool things mm-hmm, and like this mm-hmm. is what wins Oscars and dialogue is the thing that it kind of is invisible and no one thinks about but it's more more clinical but also doing that di- I did more um, dialogue ADR so I got to work with the actors which ended up being really cool you know going into directing and got to be on the mix stage and in the ADR stage the dubbing stage where we record lines but this guy was like talking about how, you know, men can't focus. We can't do dialogue like women. And as he was talking, he just, he could see the whole room just staring at him. The room, I, I was the only woman in the room. Like everyone was mm-hmm. just looking at him like, dude, like shut up. And he was kind of like, you <laughs> what know, the kept fuck putting are his, you talking about? Yeah, yeah. He kept putting his foot in his mouth, but you know, he meant well. Um, and, I, and there was another, I remember another case too, of being in a room with, it was, I was in a room. Um, there was a, a black guy, a mixed tech that was in the room and we were like apart. And then there was this, this group of five or six middle-aged white dudes sitting and having, well, I don't know what was sitting lunch, but we we're taking a break or something. And they were talking about the new Oscars um, diversity things and kind of like, you know, like lamenting, like, oh, you know, I can't remember exactly what they were saying, but I remember interrupting them. I was like, guys, can you just take a moment and recognize the fact that you guys are complaining about the diversity. You five white dudes are complaining about the diversity <laughs> requirement. And the one woman and the one black dude in the room are not a part of this conversation. And I give the complete credit because they all paused, like looked at each other and started laughing. And like, that's the thing is like, things are changing. Things are difficult, but I really do think that most people are kind of open to, you know, self-evaluating and laughing at themselves and trying to grow um, for the most part. So well, yeah, I don't know. for nothing, it's about time. I want to know what the catalyst was for you in giving birth to the novice. Now, obviously, a good portion of this film is personal, but take us on that journey. Was this something that was brewing in you for a while, percolating for a while? I only remember this recently because some people uh, I rode briefly for the Los, Los Angeles Rowing Club when I moved to LA. And I, I remember I'd started doing it because I was considering writing a novel about rowing and I wanted to kind of like dip my feet back in it a little bit. And Did you um, row in college though? Didn't you? I did. did I rode, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I was right. a novice. I walked on, I rode for four years. I was totally mm-hmm. obsessed with it. It was 20 mm-hmm. hours a week, um, two a days. And, um, you know, up at 5 a.m., six days a week for four years. But then after that, I stopped doing it completely. And then when I was, I was writing and then kind of doing my own thing and, you know, I was doing the sound by day, but I would be writing on the days I wasn't working because I wasn't working a lot. I was just starting out and, um, or weekends, I would always be writing. 
you know, at a, at a Starbucks at the time, I wasn't even proper LA of going to a bougie coffee shop yet. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah. And so I was definitely thinking about a story in rowing related at that point, I was probably 2014. Um, but then when I set, as I mentioned, I set the five-year goal to transition into writing and directing on no- November, 2016. And at that point I started really actively thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, like, how do I do it? I don't come from a background of, um, you know, directing tons of short films, commercials, all of that. I didn't have tons of scripts and things kind of in my whatever. This was something I'd been trying to actively do, even though it had always been um, there behind the scenes. But I started researching the careers of directors I admire, their first films, like the scope, the scale, the budgets, uh, the types of stories. And I'd been reading tons of books on, you know, writing and screenwriting and all of that for years. It's something I only realized recently, too. So soaking all that up and I, and I, and I came to this kind of, you know, this obvious realization, that for a first story, you want to write something that's very personal. It's relatively small, that the story that only you can tell. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, what do you want to see that isn't there? I mean, there's a million indie films of two people in a room talking or relationship drama or whatever, but I had never seen a film about rowing um, that really captured what I had gone through, both beauty and the, the sort of horror of the, of that experience. And so I kind of took, you know, my four years of rowing and 10 years of coming of age and compressed it and wrote The Novice. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where the genesis of that came from. And I wrote the first draft July 2017. I was actually in the UK for the reshoots of the Justice League at the time. And I was um, had all this time on my hands because they were reshooting like basically half the film. And I, as a dialogue, as the ADR person, we were basically shooting enough, um, you know, ADR again, dubbing lines, like lines of, I don't even know how to describe this for for normal people, but, um, you know, recording lines of of stuff to kind of piece the film together to Mm -hmm. not have to reshoot everything. Mm -hmm. So I had, I just started writing and um, I wrote the first draft in three weeks, but then obviously, you know, over the next two years, endless, endless drafts and kind of more, I also went through a lot of uh, personal hardships, things that happened like in that two-year period and wrote those kind of into the script as well so the the sort of physical the physical things the the psychological and things like that a lot of that comes from kind of my rowing experience and and just sort of my personality in general and then a lot of the more emotional moments actually pulled those from from breakups and um you know really really use the, the the screenwriting as a bit of a catharsis to work through some things there are many adjectives to describe your film and in the no particular order, clearly intense is up there. Intense experience to watch this movie. You were s- sitting on my chest for a while there. Yeah, it's not subtle. It's not a subtle film. You know, it's not the portrait of a lady on fire by any means. Um, and I and I do the yeah, thing who cares? Too, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I think I want to punch. I punch. There's actually an article that I read that I love the title, the headline that they put it's like lauren hadaway wants to punch people in the face and i'm like i fucking <laughs> love this um but uh yeah i do i do and the thing too that i wanted to explore was i love the obsessed kind of artist movies um there's there's countless ones but the, you know the most some of the more recent ones black swan whiplash right um, your film was compared to those yeah and um but the thing that i don't relate to about those or any kind of other you know these of these types of films is there's always this external force there's always like you know the in whiplash there's the instructor and in black swan there's the mother and the and Mm -hmm. the the dance dude and 
or they're trying to be the best drummer in the world or the best right. ballet person in the world. Like I don't relate to that. Like one, I'm very internally driven. Um, if it's not ha- coming from the inside, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Like I, even when I was rowing, I would tell people it's classic at the end of the, the 2k, you know, race, which you, you see in the film for your teammates who've already finished to come and basically scream at you to motivate you to finish. And I would tell them, do not fucking come near me. It's mm-hmm. not going to help me. It's going to piss me off. It's going to fuck me up. Mm-hmm. And these other girls actually benefit from it. Like if I'm not going to final sprint, I'm not, you aren't going to make me like, it's got to come from internal. Yeah. Life. If it's going to happen, I'm going to make it happen. Exactly. And so I, I don't do well in group exercise classes for the same reason. Like I just know this about myself. The other thing too, that I find interesting is like the way that I obsessed over rowing and other things. It was never about being the best. Cause I wasn't trying to, I was never, I'm not built to be a rower. I'm tall for a woman, but I'm very short for a rower. I'm not like naturally very athletic, like I'm not going to the Olympics. Our team wasn't great. We weren't winning races, you know, all of these things, but I was still obsessed with it just the same. And so I wanted to explore someone who's gritty for the sake of being kind of gritty. And, and what does that mean in the character study on that? And also someone who's internally motivated. And because of that, because film is not a novel where, you know, you can write out everything the character's thinking and going through and working through it's visual and sonic medium that really dictated the stylistic choices. So, you know, it's not a subtle film because it can't be a subtle film in my opinion, because I want the audience, 99% of whom don't know anything about rowing and probably haven't felt this level of intense obsession about something. Like how do you Mm. make the audience feel what the character is feeling and not making this quiet kind of meandering thing. So I want people, I want to use, you said to feel like something was on your chest. Like I want people to feel the anxiety. I want people to not feel like they can breathe until the very end. That was very intentional. Writing this, did it kind of pour out of you? Did you know where you were going to wind up when you started? It did. I would say the script poured out of me. I, the, you know, again, the first draft came out in three weeks. That being said, um, looking back and since I've written a lot since then, but my, my process is sort of having a, an idea spark and generally kind of knowing where it's going to end up, but then just vomiting it out. And then writing is really rewriting. So if you were to look at the first draft of the script versus, you know, the last one, there's a lot of evolution that happens and you're really discovering the kind of character as you go. And I think too, and, and, the, and the, from the first draft of the script from 2017 to when we shot at the end of 2019, a lot of things happened in my life that were really, really, <laughs> really rough for me. Um, I hit some rock bottoms. And so the, I think the script became even darker in some ways. And also going back to what we we're talking about with imposter syndrome and sort of being bold, I think too, part of coming of age is realizing that no one really gives a fuck about you as much as you think that they do. Yeah. Um, and, and being, being bold and, and doing things like, I, I remember the first time I had the idea for, um, the film uses a lot of like 1960s love songs for that, for the quote unquote action scenes that idea came very early and I timidly was like telling that one of the producers was like, what do you guys think about this song with the scene and nerve nervous? Cause it's like, an, it's an out there. It's not, you know, a standard idea and they were totally game for it. And I think the more you have those cases where you kind of boldly say something that you're thinking and people respond to it positively, the more kind of courage you get and the easier it becomes to, to, to really hit things to the fullest. Because again, I Tarantino, Kill Bill was the film that made me want to be a filmmaker. Of course, I want to do things that are bold and in your face. Mm-hmm. And I want, when I go to the, the, the theater or watch a film, I want to be taken for a ride and I want to take people for a ride. Mm-hmm. And do you also find yourself, when a film is over, realizing that you didn't breathe during the 90 minutes? 
I mean, I hope so. I was actually thinking about Interstellar recently, last night, and wanting to rewatch it. And then that's a film I've watched a couple of times, and it's something that's so intense for me. Um, you know, the score, the visuals, the emotion of it, everything. And some people, you know, say perhaps it's hammered, this or that. But I want to feel like if I'm, I love all genre of films. I have projects in, in basically every genre of, of my own projects. Um, but if it's if it's a drama, I want to cry. If it's the comedy, I want to laugh. If it's right. a horror, I want to be screaming. Like I just want to feel something. I want to be transported. And I think that film is this beautiful thing because it allows film, novels, whatever, music, even it allows us to live these different lives as human beings. It allows us to time travel, even. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, talk about the character of Alex Dahl, and, and you mentioned that obviously you factor in. Obviously, the first pages I wrote were the early pages in the, in the film and the script where I wanted to also, you know, this, I, I say this all the time. This isn't a rowing film. This is a film with rowing and this is, right. you know, rowing right. is a medium to tell a story about grit and ambition. That it's being the said, means to the end in a sense. Yeah, right? exactly. But that being said, you need to explain to the audience in a way, um, what the sport is and, sh- and go on with the world. So Alex sort of most crudely put is this proxy of going into this world of rowing and, and learning about it through her eyes and, She's a little bit of an enigma and soaking everything up and kind of observing. And I think too, you know, as a character early on, I wanted her to feel um, like an enigma. And I think the question that I always was asked at the script stage and even at the the film at editing stage, and I even read now is sort of why, and people comment that she feels a bit like, um, you know, a cipher and enigma. And that's intentional is I don't actually, you know, there's scenes that we, that I kept getting this note, the why, 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 and scenes I wrote and, put in and shot and then was still getting this question of the why. And it was so aggravating. And I talked to co-editor Nathan um, Nugent on this and was like, you know what, if people are still going to keep asking this question of why, and I have to put in these scenes that I fucking hate, that I cannot mm. stand. And they're mm. not even getting people to shut up about this question. And then <laughs> fuck it. Like let's yeah. take these out and let's push yeah. it the other way, the way that I want to go, which is make her an enigma, a zoo animal, someone you're curious about a mystery of like what's driving her. And the other thing too, that I, and I get people's frustration. Some people are frustrated. Like, who is she? Why, why is she a cipher? Like, I want to know more about her, but I don't want to give people that easy answer because, and again, this is the nature of filmmaking. You have to have things explained and, and all that. Um, and maybe I was inspired somewhat by basically watching the French uh, year of only French cinema and they don't handhold, but we like to have one specific answer. We like to say, Oh, this thing happened when she was seven years old that, traumatize her and that's the way she is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's certainly the case sometimes yeah a few people sure but for most of us 90 90 percent if not more of us we are the way we are because a culmination of a thousand tiny things that have happened over our life and so for me to like give you the audience uh oh well her mother you know and her father's Yeah. Uh, you know, like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. Certainly we could analyze and microanalyze, but I wanted her to be an enigma and I didn't want to have these easy things. And again, have this character study of who she is. And I think the other thing I want to do is I don't, again, if you look at, you know, Whiplash, Black Swan, these two principal characters are kind of um, loners. They're very, they don't know how to like really interact with people fully. Alex isn't like that. Like in the beginning, maybe you think she is, but I wanted to make it clear she can, you know, interact with people. She can have normal relationships. She just chooses not to. Um, and I think too, something that I, my early twenties, especially, uh, was very kind of clinical, did not value late teens, early twenties, didn't value kind of romantic platonic relationships at all. Didn't understand it. And it wasn't until my late twenties of dating people who did value those things that you could really see how much it can enrich life. And I think in some ways, 
something I realized kind of doing the press on this is that Danny, the, the girlfriend character who is this like warm horse and can kind of do it all and has balance. Like in some ways, you know, she's a proxy of perhaps my older self trying to tell my younger self like, Hey, yeah, you know, chill. You know, chill the fuck out. But mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that's a lesson we kind of all have to learn the hard way. So, mm-hmm. and what was the, the drive for you in terms of Alex's sexuality? Um, just like a classic, write what you know. The funny thing is the first draft of the script, even though I'm, I am gay, the first draft of the script, I was writing the, um, Danny initially as like a dude. And I remember thinking like, why does this feel fucking stupid? Like force. <laughs> and, you know, I quickly had the epiphany of like, well, of course, like, why don't you, you know, I had compulsory heterosexuality as like a, as a gay woman, I'm like sitting here writing this heterosexual relationship of, you know, when I am, this is a proxy of myself. So it made no sense. And then as soon as I, you know, I, I changed Danny to, to being this, this woman, it, it, it clicked and it felt right. And it felt easy and, and whatever. And, and I think the other thing too, that that's important to me is I think, you know, I think that queer people need stories of oppression, overcoming whatever, mm-hmm. but we also need stories where it just isn't a thing. Um, and there's no message narrative attached to the right, queerness. Right, right. This, this is just who I am and we're moving along here. Yeah. And that that's, that is the message. And I think too, generationally speaking, you know, I'm 32 and people my age are a little there. There's a little bit of freedom in who you are, but we're still very attached to labels and who's what. And I think people 10, 20 years older than me, or even have been more rigid defined in how you present and all these different things because of the way society is. But 18 year olds these days, I mean, I dated for a while, um, a college professor and she would tell me like 18 year olds, they walk into my classroom and they're just like, they're whatever. Like they don't fucking care. And granted that's not everywhere. And certainly you mean with an attitude kind of, no, I don't think with an attitude, they're just like blah. Like they don't want to talk. They don't want to labels. They don't, ah, they're, okay. they're queer. Everyone's kind of queer. Everyone doesn't care. And, and, and um, yeah. mm-hmm. there's like less kind of, and, and I used to actually aggravated by this. I was like, Oh, these kids they're you know, and I'm like, Oh, get off my lawn. Old, old, fucking Lauren. Um, but now I, you know, actually I, I, I kind of love it and I, and I would like to live in a, I mean, this will never happen. I would love to live in a world where we don't have to have conversations about being a woman or about being a queer person right, or, right. you know, a person of color or this or that, right. and that we aren't there yet. The film also is mostly women. That wasn't on purpose either. Again, it's that you, I think that diversity and storytelling is so important because if it is this case of write what you know, and certainly not always does it need to be that, but if that's generally kind of the principle, you're going to get stories that are more diverse and kind of more representative if you have more diverse storytellers. Right. Because I'm telling a story. I'm a woman. I was on a women's rowing team. I'm gay. Therefore, you get a film with 95% women with a queer storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of simple. What has it been like for you to have had this film released and then savoring, I'll use that verb, the accolades? After doing post-production was particularly brutal. Uh, uh, one, there was a pandemic, but even if there hadn't been a pandemic, but doing you know post-production in my kitchen during the pandemic uh, was a nightmare. And not knowing if there would be film festivals, if there would be theaters, if anyone would be buying films, any of this. And then not to, like, I, the first time I saw this film with any kind of audience, more than two people was at Tribeca. You have people watching in this now, but it was really difficult. It felt like I was making this kind of in a vacuum. And the sort of the nature of um, me, I mean, we knew we, we knew when we shot the film, me and my producers were like, we have a post budget, but like, we don't really have a post budget. Like, let's uh-huh. just get this thing shot. And worst case scenario, 
I have a background in editing and sound. I can do a lot of the work myself. And so by nature of that, I kind of, that's what ended up happening. Um, did more than I would like to ever do, do again in the future. <laughs> Pushing you know. that rock up a hill, huh? Yeah. And it's my blood, sweat and tears investment. And then I'm also a control freak. So maybe part of me loves it, but, um, yeah, it was, it was rough and, and you don't really know. And, and even you hear people because people, people rarely say bullshit to you. I mean, the one thing I learned with the the novice at a couple points, like when I, the scripts, you know, sending that out versus a couple other things I, I've written, you don't really know the difference between enthusiastic feedback and polite feedback until you've gotten enthusiastic feedback. Uh-huh. Um, that seems so much realer. Yeah. And you're heartfelt. Like, you're like, oh, everything up to this point, all of the quote unquote good I've gotten to this point has just been people trying to be polite and nice. Um and that happened too with the editing stage. I mean, the edit was a uh, was a uh, tough on this, and uh, we went through tons of passes on it. Tons of, I mean, the film and, and the editing is like a rewriting process of its own. Um, and it was the final kind of pass, this eleventh hour um, pass that I did of the film, and, and retemping the score and everything, and sending that out, and seeing the the way that people responded to that change compared mm. to what had everything been. I felt good about it first of all. But then when people responded, like the enthusiastic feedback started coming. And I was like, oh, so this, so it is, you know, it is a thing. Um, it starts there, but you still second guess yourself. And then that Tribeca, uh, having people react in the audience in a certain way was great. But again, I've learned to kind of have no expectations about things. And then you can't be disappointed. Um, and then winning, you know, the awards was great again. Well, there's this validation, whether you need it or not. Yeah, it's valid. It's great. I mean, to say, why couldn't you savor it? I mean, I've been there and done that too, where, yeah, oh, this is great, but there's still that skepticism or self-doubt or whatever you want to call it. You're like, okay, great. We we won, but mm, is anyone going to buy the film? And then, and then, you know, IFC picked us up and it's like, okay, well, is anyone, and then is anyone going to doesn't yeah. come out and then to we got nominated for a bunch of indie spirits too which we weren't like literally the night before we got all those nominations i was out with my old roommate um who, who saw me witness me going crazy doing posts in this film and i was telling her it would be great for us you know if we were scraped one maybe if we scraped one i don't think it's going to happen but that would be sweet if it did and then the next morning getting five um was a lot and then you know the reviews coming in good i was talking to my producer a year or two ago like if we could just scrape a 61 on rotten tomatoes that's all yeah yeah right right so yeah it's it's i'm trying but i had a friend actually tell me something that i think i try and keep in the back of my head which is if you be careful about reviews and and accolades and all this because if you take all the good ones you know to heart you also have to take the bad ones to heart you know and then Mm -hmm, vice versa mm -hmm, sure Mm -hmm. so that kind of keeps me balanced it certainly is rewarding and i probably it's easy to say this now because i've gotten accolades had i not and we probably wouldn't be having this conversation anyways but um yeah i don't know it's it is very validating it does kind of all all the things we've been talking about the imposter syndrome and, and doing all this and the fact that too i basically threw away and stepped back from what was a very promising relatively for me as a redneck, you know, from from the middle of nowhere, lucrative career in quote unquote Hollywood to to step away from that, to pursue what seemed like a pipe dream and to pursue, you know, something that everyone in LA has a screenplay, everyone in LA wants to be a director and to actually go through and have done it. Yeah. It feels, feels great. Yeah. And it's also the taking off of your clothes. Here I am. I'm completely exposed regardless of what your sense of self is. You're putting you out there in a major, major way. Well, obviously people who were like, 
fuck this chick in this film and this, you know, obviously, and most of them I can laugh at. A couple of, there's, there's some criticisms and stuff too that I think are totally valid. And I'm like, yeah, you got a fucking point. There's criticism that people, I'm like, you just don't get it. And that's totally fine. Like you're allowed that. And, sure. um, but a lot of people also too, responding positively to these things and like seeing that there are people out there who, you know, is getting messages from people um, in my kind of in inbox that I that I read that is validating some kind of heartfelt ones, people connecting or people just being excited by the filmmaking or the the lack of subtlety of being punched. Some people like being punched in the face and that's great. It's like, um, it makes me, again, it's just kind of like going back to what I said about the telling my producers kind of scared, like, eh, what do you guys think about this weird thing I want to do? And then being like, let's fucking do it. And so right, now I've made this right. weird film and for the most part, people are like, cool, we like this weird <laughs> film. So I'm like, all right, I got some more shit. Let's uh, let's keep going, you know. So people can view The Novice on streaming services. Yeah, it's definitely on uh, streaming and rental. So what's up next for Lauren Hathaway professionally? You know, this, I have a, it seems like I knock on wood, we'll have to be able to make a second film, which is great. Um, Why wouldn't you be able to make a second film? Well, again, this goes back to everything we just talked about. Of like, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Like, I'll believe it when I fucking see it. I've lived in LA long enough. I thought I made all that shit an art form as far as I'm concerned. I'm about five times your age and it never leaves you. At some point you'd like to think, oh yeah, enough already, but whatever. I'll yeah, be I mean, a healthy dose of, of, uh, of uh, self analyzing and, and wondering if you're, you're great or not is probably good for Or the, you, what you made was a fluke. Yeah, exactly. It's probably good for the ego. Um, but but the, the thing that I've, I've got a lot of things in the docket. And the thing that I've been saying lately, this analogy is a, like, I feel like being a writer director is like having children in the 1800s. You have to have a lot of them because most of them aren't going to make it to adulthood. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So I have many children right now that I'm nurturing. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully the next thing actually I have a, a comedy that I'm hoping to do. Um, but I've got a little bit of everything kind of action, uh, horror, fantasy long-term goal but um yeah we'll see well will you keep us in your loop i certainly will it was nothing short of a pleasure to meet and get to know you i just loved your honesty and your frankness and your passion it was just it was really terrific and people should make a point of seeing the novice and uh get punched in the face and yeah. get punched in the face ain't nothing wrong with getting punched in the face and if i have to get punched in the face i certainly don't mind getting punched in the face by you Thank you. And thank you. This conversation was lovely. It's a nice, uh, some new, some new, uh, points I haven't talked about yet. So, well, it's really nice to get to know the person behind the film in a different way. You were so open and it was fascinating and really easy, Lauren. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>